Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in Acts chapter 5, and here is the infamous story, we should say, of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, yesterday, uh, we saw at the end of chapter 4 that Luke was setting up the story. You may remember that the early church was characterized by fellowship, worship, discipleship, and charity. And at the end of chapter 4, he emphasized the both fellowship and charity. And that many would sell their properties and bring the, the, the profit into the church and give it all away so that no one was without need. And that set up this narrative because Luke is comparing two believers. One is uh, uh, Barnabas, uh, who is known as the son of encouragement. I mean, what, what a name that is. And the other that we'll see in chapter 5 is Ananias and Sapphira. Both of them uh, sell their property. One does it in the way of righteousness, the other does in the way of unrighteousness. And the difference isn't the percentage or the amount they give to the church, but the heart and the reason they, they do what they do. Uh, so uh, Barnabas gives everything, and he does it for the good of others. And Ananias and Sapphira are, like the Pharisees, uh, doing this for their own glory. Uh, so we see there, verse 1, a man named Ananias, his wife is Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. This is everything we saw at the end of chapter 4. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Peter will make this point. They've not done anything wrong here. They, they sold a prop, uh, property and they gave some of it to the church. We do this to this day, right? Uh, many people have given a percentage of, say, an inheritance to the local church. Um, and, and churches all over the country have benefited from that. In fact, right now, you can set up, I think it's an estate, I, I, I don't understand all of it, uh, through the Kentucky Baptist Convention uh, called the Kentucky Baptist Foundation. And that will direct some of uh, your uh, wealth to various ministries, churches, and, and whatnot. Uh, so, so there's nothing wrong with what it is they do if this is all it is. If they agree, look, we are going to give, let's say, 10% of, our, of, of proceeds to the church. And no one would say a thing about that. That's not the issue here. But Peter said, Ananias, why has the Spirit filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, notice there, remember that so far in Acts, there's a major emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that here in this story. But Peter immediately notices and uh, um, exhorts them that they are lying because they're saying, we sold our property for X amount of dollars. Here is all of that. Rather, or in reality, what they've done is they said it sold for X amount of dollars, but it actually sold for Y, but they're only given X. And the reason they're doing that is, is peer pressure. They're wanting to, to, to be um, the uh, inner circles, what C.S. Lewis would call it. The idea that, well, everyone else is doing it, and everyone gets praised, and everyone uh, that does it, you know, it, you know uh, is, is, is approved by everyone else. We can do the same thing without risking our financial well-being. Right? So Peter confronts them. And then you'll notice, uh, he, he explains in verse 4, you could have done whatever you wanted with your property uh, and, and your wealth. could have done whatever you want. But in bringing this, you are claiming one thing when reality is something else. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. In fact, notice what he says at the end of verse 4. You have not lied to man, but to God. 
This is why this is such a serious issue here. They come with a gift thinking they'll fool the church and the people in the church and people will praise them and, and give them uh, 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 areas of influence and whatnot. When in reality, they have deceived God. And you'll notice here, this is important for our theology of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you have lied to God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. And this helps our understanding of the Trinity. We believe that God is one, but God uh, is, is triune. The Father is God and is not the Son. The Son is God, but is not the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but is not the Father. So we worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Spirit. And, and this is very clear here. Now, with that said, we still worship one God. It's, it's, we don't need to get distracted by Trinitarian stuff. Um, now, three hours later, so verse 7, after an interval of three hours, his wife came in. And, and this is where preachers make jokes. One joke is, um, okay, after three hours, she finally comes in. How long does, should it really take to fix your hair? Ha ha. And then they note, it seems like as if the church service is going on for three hours. And then preachers love, love that thought. But that's not the point. And then all that is, is a distraction. And Peter asks, how much did you sell the land for? Right, Because she's going to come bringing the rest of the gift. And um, she does everything that her husband told her to do and that she was in agreement with her husband to do. That is to lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, Peter asks, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. What a crazy scene this is. And Ananias dies in church. His wife comes in. And after Peter exhorts her, she dies in the church. Now, Baptists don't handle this stuff very well because we don't like change. If it's not on the bulletin, then it better not take place, right? So Peter would be finding him another church, I guess. But what a crazy story this is. And then notice it gets even stranger. When the young men came in, they found her, her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The first job of the deacons, of course, deacons aren't around yet, but, but the, the first role of servants in the church is burying members in the church. Isn't this crazy? And then we get in verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Of course it did. If you believed that if you go to that church, you might die... I think fear would be an adequate word to describe the emotion there. But why is there fear? Yes, because they die. But it isn't just because people have died, but because they have fallen under the judgment of God. That stirs fear. And that is the root problem of American evangelicalism. The church doesn't fear God. That's why our prayer lives are terrible. That's why our worship is anemic. That's why our evangelism is... is, is, is is barely even present, and is why we're distracted by politics and tertiary theological issues and consumerism and everything else, because we do not fear God. However, you'll find that even with this, the church continues to expand. Why? Because when the church takes holiness seriously, it will grow. But when the church is made up of hypocrites, it will decline. And that is where the church is right now, if we're honest. Well, we must go on before I get in too much trouble. Uh, 
Skip down, the apostles are arrested again. Verse 19, during the night, an angel Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Notice what we have here is God liberates them from prison only to put them back into danger. I think if we read the Bible more seriously, uh, our, th- our theology about suffering would, would change radically. God is putting them in a dangerous situation. Well, so they're going to stand before the council. They're going to be arrested again. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in, in, in this name. Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So there goes their Twitter account. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Men, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. Let me, let me just pause there. We see how often the apostles will lay the burden at the feet of sinners. You and I have killed Jesus, our Messiah. And this is particularly singing to the Jews in the claim that their Messiah came and they rejected him. It's a very strong rebuke. But you see there that, that um, he was killed by hanging him on a tree. That is the, the description. Uh, the, the cross is made of wood, which of course comes from a tree. There's also a theological description here. Go to our study of Galatians, which was, I think, the very first book we ever went all the way through back in March or April last year. Um, but in Galatians, Paul talks about how Christ takes upon himself the curse of the law by dying upon the tree. For the law says, cursed is anyone who dies upon a tree. And so the, the apostles didn't shy away from that text. They embraced it. So throughout Acts... Luke will use the word tree as a substitute for the word cross. But he means the same thing. But he's wanting to to bring out, particularly before Jewish readers and a Jewish audience, that tension that Christ became a curse for us. Likewise, uh, in our study of Matthew, we saw that Matthew juxtaposes the death of Judas, who dies by hanging, he dies upon a tree, and Jesus, who dies by being hung from a tree, uh, which is, in this case, a cross. One is he becomes a curse but, ne- but never but never finds grace the other becomes a curse thus giving us grace this is found throughout the new testament and so we we see it very very clearly here verse 31 god exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins notice you have repentance there but not baptism we talked about this in chapter 2 those who say that one have to be baptized in order to be saved aren't reading the rest of the book Uh, Verse 32, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So again, Christ was crucified on a Pontius Pilate, and you have crucified your Messiah. Two, we are his witnesses. How can we not proclaim what we know is true and real? Now, society will do that, and society is doing that now in in America and in all the West, uh, which means we'll all lose our Twitter accounts, among other things. But the question is, Peter is asking here is um, how can we not obey God over man? We've been commissioned to do this. We will fulfill it. And this is the beauty of of Christian history where we have um, 2,000 years of Christians faithfully doing precisely that. Well, as the the council develops, we meet a man by the name of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel plays a part in the story, but then he really uh, exit stage left after this. We don't really meet him again. He shows up, plays a prominent role, and he leaves. But Gamaliel was a very influential and popular rabbi at this time. Uh, and those who studied under him 
they themselves became influential rabbis, right? So much in the way that if you go to Harvard or Yale, chances are uh, you are going to have access to wealth and influence in uh, the elites, right? That, that we understand this. So if you understood, uh, if you um, studied under Gamaliel, then that's going to be good for you. His most prominent disciple is Paul. Paul mentions this in Philippians. So we, we looked at that passage, I'm sure, uh, I believe it's Philippians 3. Um, and uh, uh, so this Gamaliel is important for us to understand the New Testament era, but he only plays a specific role here uh, in Acts chapter 5. And notice what he says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. So when he speaks, people listen. He carries with him years of experience, wisdom, and authority. Verse 36, For before these days, uh, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. Um, he was killed, and all of his followers, uh, all who followed him, were dispersed and came to nothing. What is striking about that is Josephus mentions this guy. It's another example of, of history affirming uh, what we find in the Bible. Now, I don't think we know anything else about him outside of Acts 5 and Josephus, but we do have corrob corroborating evidence that this man existed and this really happened. There were plenty of guys like this. Luke could or Gamaliel could have pulled from anyone. Um, uh, Barabbas possibly was, was, a, was a small version of Thetis, but basically what you have is a false messiah making claims, going to overthrow Romans, gets a bunch of followers, and it comes to nothing. Rome was always having to deal with zealots like this. Verse 37, After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him scattered. Now, this person, we know about him too. In fact, he's quite an influential guy who rose up to challenge Rome and was was put down. Uh, I think I believe Josephus mentions him uh, along with other uh, documents. Uh, so Judas, I, I believe, was, was a more um, significant event than Thetis. Uh, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, now this is incredible advice, isn't it? Because Gamaliel's looking around and says, look, guys, we go through this every year. We go through this. And what will we find? We find the same pattern. Some guy pops up saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to liberate us. I'm going to do this or that. And guess what happens? It doesn't happen. He dies and all of his followers are executed, tortured, or dispersed. And nothing comes of it. He says, but if God is behind this one, it ain't going to fail. And whatever you do, you ain't going to contribute to its success or its failure. But be careful that you do not oppose God. Now, can I just add a footnote here? It's not the main point, but, but given our, our cultural moments worth mentioning, why do Christians keep following for this? Every four years, we buy into the messianic complex, don't we? If we, buy, if we vote for this guy, our taxes will be better, poverty will be, will be resolved, the planet will heal, wars will cease, and we'll all live happily ever after. Now, has that ever happened? Rarely I say unto thee, no. And it won't this time, and it won't next time. You can get wound up, you can get worked up. And things will change, good or bad. Yes, I get that. But we constantly fall for this. And since our institutions are failing, because the home is broken, we uh, increasingly become a politicized society. 
because there's nothing left for us to hope in. There's nothing left for us to, 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 to see good news in. And Christians fall for this. So I think Gamaliel's vice is actually quite good. Gamaliel's not a believer. Um, but God uses him uh, to teach us in an important lesson. Whatever it is God is, is behind, it will not fail. And God is behind his church. And God is behind his kingdom. And God is behind the work of the gospel. Get behind and support it. Don't worry about anything else. Well, again, I'm probably, probably in trouble for that, for that little sermon. But it says there at the end of verse 39, they took his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let him go. And then what do we see here? Uh, verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They got broken bones and bruises. And they're rejoicing. And yet Christians today can't smile whenever they're stuck in traffic longer than they think they should. I mean, what, what a difference in the perspective these, these men had. They leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Don't you love that? They were followers of the name, the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names. They thought, God considered me worthy to suffer as he did for me. Wow, what an honor. What an honor. How radically different this is. How much better it would be if we recovered it. And every day, notice every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Suffering should never, should never slow down the church. But should draw us to take our faith more seriously and to draw others in to it. What a fascinating chapter. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.